netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. In today's podcast, Mike Seymour is going to speak with Marcos Fajardo from Solid Angle about the Arnold Renderer uh, and also about the recent SciTech award that they won for the Renderer um, at the SciTech Oscars. So um, heading in, we're in the middle of wrapping up award season now. The Oscars are soon, so we wanted to make sure we get this out. And uh, Mike's a bit of a Renderer-obsessed person, you might say. So he really wanted to follow up with Marcos and not only congratulate him on this on this win, but also um, have a discussion about where things are heading. So let's join now with Mike and Marcos. Let me start uh, off by saying congratulations and uh, well done. I, I uh, obviously well earned. What's well, 20 years, right? Yeah, 20 years. Uh, I started writing the first lines of code in 1997. I think the first file was sphere.c. <laughs> Um, in the acceptance speech you made at the um, SciTech reception, which was, you know, terrific, I was really um, interested to hear you praising the, I guess, academic community or the, the nature of academic publishing, the idea of people um, putting their work out there and that you'd benefited from, you know, people that have been publishing and contributing, both obviously inside but also outside your own company. Um I was wondering if I could sort of just get you to illuminate on that point because I think it's something that we, you know, we value greatly and it advances the cause that people do share. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. I mean, just like I said, I'm, I'm really happy to be part, to contribute to, to this international community of researchers that just keep working together to advance the state of the art of, of rendering. To me, that's something really beautiful. And I mean, th- th- I'm sure this happens in many, many other industries. And that really, that is how science advances and, and should continue to advance, right? Collaboration across countries and engineers and scientists, it doesn't matter where, where they're from. I think that's very powerful. And I hope that we don't lose that in the future, you know, and I don't want to get too political, but you know, it's uh, things are happening these days that are not, that are a little disturbing. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, we're an international, happy international community and I'm really happy to contribute to, to this field and, and have many, many friends around the world in, in all of these different countries all over the world. Yeah, I remember when I started doing FX Guide, people said you shouldn't be publishing stuff because you're learning all these secrets and you're just, you know, giving them away. But I have to say, I'm probably a factor of 10. I learn so much more than I ever um, it ever cost me in giving stuff away. I mean, just literally being able to talk to people um, openly is just, uh, no matter how much you're trying to disseminate information, you get an enormous amount that you learn and it's uh, yeah. it's just a gift. Exactly. I mean, you have to, each, each situation is different, but you have to balance what you what you can lose by giving certain secrets away and what you can gain by just being open and talking to people and receiving new ideas from people just just by brainstorming with people. To me, that's really clear. That, you know, what we gain by, by being collaborative and by talking to everybody is much, much, much more than the little things that we might lose if we kept things secret or we had a more patents or whatever. To me, that's really clear, but everybody has to make that call, that call on their own. Well, I'm going to come back to this idea of publishing in a second, but I, I wanted to just, if I could, uh, start by um, discussing what you've been publishing lately. So 
the last uh, major paper I remember reading of yours was I think SIGGRAPH 2016 when you were doing the blue noise dithering sampling stuff and I never got to ask you what the heck's going on there. So do you mind if I spend a couple of minutes just asking about that paper? Okay. So you guys um, published at SIGGRAPH a a paper that if I could just paraphrase and I know I'll get this incredibly wrong, but obviously we spent a lot of time in rendering sampling and... Obviously, you want to randomly sample and, and uh, sample in a way that isn't obviously uh, uh, an obvious pattern that's going to throw up problems. You came up with a different way of doing what seemed like the sampling. And I think if I remember correctly, the way it was described is that, well, it's great to do a kind of a white noise um, sort of sampling kind of approach. Uh, in one sense, that's actually not a perceptibly optimal way of doing it. And so you had this blue noise dithering sampling thing. And I never really got my head around why it was blue <laughs> and why it was so clever. I know that it's related to obviously Fourier transforms and also the notion of dithering that we see in the print industry. But I'd love it if you could just quickly connect those dots, if it's possible to quick, quickly connect okay, those dots. Me, yeah. yeah, let me try. Um, so in usually in most renders and um, the way usually people do sampling in a, in a render in, a, in an image is to what we call is to do uncorrelated sampling. And that means that every pixel is independent of all the other pixels. So, you know, you might have a pixel, you throw a bunch of random numbers, then you move on to the next pixel and you forget, you know, you totally forget what the previous pixel was. That We call that uncorrelated sampling. So in, in this paper that, that you mentioned in SIGGRAPH uh, 2016, what we, what we described is a method to do correlated sampling, which is a method where the random numbers in a pixel uh, are related to the pixels around it. Uh, you know, so that's the first thing. It's, it's, that's correlation across, across the pixels. And that correlation usually is a bad thing because you want, you want every pixel to be independent so that each pixel is an unbiased solution to the equation that we're trying to solve. But if you're smart enough, we, we can do a bit of both. We can do unbiased sampling that, that has certain correlation across the pixels in a way that makes the, the resulting image more pleasing to the eye. Um, if, you, if you just do naive, uh, plain random sampling independent for each pixel, uncorrelated sampling, then like you said, you get white noise. You, you, might, you might have a, in a pixel, you might have you know, a number from zero to one, a random number from zero to one, which might be 0 0.1. In the next pixel, just by pure chance, you might also have 0 0.1. And in the next pixel, again, you might have also, again, 0.1. And that's bad. That's what we call clumping. And that results in, you know, some pixel being, being very, you know, you get this clumping effect in, in certain areas of the image. That's not good. So th this correlation that we described, blue noise um, uh, correlation, it kind of like spreads out those clumps across the image plane so that they become easier to, to look at, you know what I mean? Like smoother, the distribution of noise is a little bit more uniform. So the funny thing is that the numerical error, the amount, the absolute numerical error is the same in, in, in these uh, techniques. So we're not improving the absolute error. What we are improving is the distribution of that noise across the image plane, if that makes sense. And that, yeah, that has cert a certain um, analogy in the printing industry where, you know, with dithering, you, you, you're trying to distribute that that boolean you know zero one black byte black byte across the the image plane or the print in a way that's more you know pleasing or appealing to the eye so in effect by 
by controlling how you're doing the sampling, you're not having to do more sampling and you're not getting a, a lower error from a mathematical point of view. But me as a viewer, just looking at it, it just looks less like it's got errors. In other words, less noise. Exactly. It's got, it's got a, the, the distribution of the error we found that it's uh, the distribution of the error is as important as the numerical absolute value of the error, if that makes sense. That's the key idea behind this work. And ju just to clarify, we didn't invent this, this uh, technique. This sure. technique existed before. Others, others have described it before. Uh, I think the paper that we referenced in was a 19 paper by Don Mitchell called, I think it was called something like spectrally optimally sampling or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he laid out the basic ideas of this technique. However, the, the actual algorithm that he published wasn't very, wasn't optimal, wasn't really good. And, you know, we described a way to do that in with a much, much better quality by using something that we called uh, simulated annealing, where, which is a funny, it's a great algorithm that, that's similar to how, to the way that crystals like real physical materials, like crystals, uh, crystallize. Like when you when you have a hot material and you cool it down slowly, you know, and the material reaches a certain low energy level. There's there's a process in there that we can simulate algorithmically, and it's called simulated annealing. And we use the process to compute these super super high quality uh, blue noise sampling patterns. Okay, so if somebody doesn't know why you're saying blue noise, we're not talking about an actual blue color we're talking about frequencies do you want to explain why it's blue noise and how that i mean for those that don't know i know it's a term outside of our industry it's a general yeah. computer term but it doesn't really relate to color at all yeah. i think in fact uh you know i'll have to look it up in uh, in a few places to be sure but i think it's just uh, for example white noise it's just um you know totally uncorrelated random noise then there's all the types of noise that, that researchers get names to, like pink noise, blue noise, brown noise. And it just refers to the um, um, spectral distribution of the noise. Like if you get the Fourier uh, transform of this noise and you, and you plot this thing in one axis, you can see that certain frequencies are you know, higher than others. And, yeah, you know, because, because like in... Colors. Yeah, because in a spectrum of a rainbow, obviously the red to blues have different frequencies. They have different energy levels, they have different sort of, you know, power effectively. And so that's what we perceive as color. Obviously, different spectral frequencies we perceive as different colors. So when it says blue noise, it's referring to that sense of blue, not the color blue, <laughs> which would make, yeah. which I mean, we once did a, a, a an April Fool's. Um, podcast where we discussed doing a renderer that that refused to color uh, render the color red but this is this is serious maths and and obviously that idea of different as you say like um, gray violet whatever type noise is something that happens in audio it happens in um, in all parts of uh, uh, this kind of area of science yeah so i don't think it has a direct correlation with color and again i would have to check with with my other co-author of the paper with dillian he, he would totally give you a lecture on why they call that <laughs> pink blue whatever but yeah, the whole point is that we want to get to a noise, to a type of noise that's higher frequency. And the higher frequency means, uh, just to give you an example, that you might have in one pixel, you may have white. In the next pixel, you get black. Next pixel, you get white, black, white, black, white, black. So it's that constant alternation that's high frequency. And that would be a good simulation of the color gray. Like if you're trying to integrate something that where the result is gray, like 0 0.5, but you only have black and white, 
the best way to do that is to alternate between black and white. Hmm. You know, black and white, black and white, white, you know, and that's high frequency uh, noise. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a great explanation. I'm sure that Ilian can could give you, like I said, a lecture on this, but you know, I hope it helps you, helps you get the idea. So the thing about this is, and the reason that I wanted to start here is that we've had some discussions lately um, from a whole lot of uh, people about the notion of noise in imagery and what is the right way to approach it. Now, this is one approach, which is obviously, um, you know, considerably helping what I perceive to be uh, a lower noise image. Obviously, the whole theory of, you know, a good ray tracer, uh, you could run it and it would converge to an image that has you know, perceptibly very low noise. Um, and of course, the other thing is to run one of these post-processing noise programs that is more than just an image processing thing. It takes information that it knows from the ray tracer and hands those over. And of course, um, uh, various companies have done that. What's, what's solid angles on your view on this sort of, uh, I'm going to call it post noise processing, but I want to be clear that it's not like an image processor that takes an arbitrary image. It's something that takes cleverness from Arnold and then would would do something with it. Yeah. So, well, first one thing, uh, I was talking about the blue noise and the high frequency. Yep. He, he's, here's something that, that will help you even better understand what that does. If you get a super high frequency noise pattern and you stand away from the image, Progressively, your eye will blur together all those uh, adjacent black and white pixels and produce gray. So that's what the blue noise dethered sampling does. It produces uh, especially if it doesn't clump. Yeah, exactly. Because the, because of that lack of clump, as you you know, it, it's a lot easier for your eye to kind of blend yep. you know those adjacent things together into uh, into the right answer. However, if you had the, if you were using older techniques with white noise and whatever, that clumping is a lot more difficult for your eye to to you know to blur and to and to merge into the right thing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I use the um, example of marble. If you if you have marble which has big kind of flecks of black and white, then it does look lumpy. Now, if you get enough distance from even either even get enough distance from that like you know standing meters and meters away from a piece of marble it'll appear gray but um obviously it would appear gray sooner if there wasn't big clumps of black and white in it um which is of course what you're saying right you're going to get a better uh way of presenting that error so that it seems to have less um uh, noise rather than specifically in this particular paper we're referring to looking at lowering noise from an error point of view so, yeah, and this ties back to the original sampling paper by Pixar. Like back in the 80s, yep. Rob Cook and all those guys introduced a paper about stochastic sampling, computer graphics. And even then, they, they, they uh, described how certain, well, certain monkeys have a special distribution of rods in their eye uh, retinas that is actually high frequency. So that will be a goal for, for, you know, a natural goal for uh, computer graphics algorithms to achieve, to, to always try to get a high uh, a frequency distribution of noise. And they described jittered sampling back then on, you know, using this uh, analogy and this, uh, and this concept. We're just taking this thing a little bit further. Okay, well, let me, let me say, I'm going to, because I really do want to come back to this thing about other uh, papers and stuff that have informed you. And, and that sounds like one of them. But but let me just finish this discussion on noise for a second. Um, so do you want to comment on your view on this idea of I get the render going only so far and then from a certain point I then turn around and say, okay, why don't you just solve this uh, by post-processing it, obviously using smarts right. that's been handed up from the renderer? Yeah, you're talking about denoising. 
which yep. is very it's a very uh, popular uh, technique these days. Uh, after a few studios started popularizing it, most notably the Disney team uh, yep. with Hyperion, they they you know they've had some success with with Ordinoiser. Um, a few other studios are, th- are starting to use that as well. So my take on that, well, it's a uh, you know, um, it's a bit of a, you know, you're, you're trading uh, quality for for blurriness. I mean, all of these algorithms, all they all produce a certain amount of the wrong answer. The thing is that how much of that can you are you able to to admit in exchange of a of a lower you know, noise level. So that really depends on each particular implementation. Uh, the Disney guys, I'm sure they have a brilliant team working on this problem and they're probably getting a, a great success. But I, I'm, I'm still not convinced that that, that these algorithms, you know, are, are, you know, the way to go. They help you a little bit, especially if your renders are very slow. So, you know, I'd rather be working on techniques to make the render faster than working on the noiser that just going to give you a hack at the end of the day. Um, that said, it's always a compromise. So, you know, we're, we're also exploring the different denoising uh, algorithms and see if there's a compromise to be to be done there. But me personally, on principle, I'd rather not use any denoising algorithms because they are giving you the wrong answer. It's about it, producing bias in the image, and which is something that we fundamentally, you know, it's against the our philosophy. However, like I said, you know, we're exploring these algorithms and hopefully we, we, we might even look uh, or find some denoising algorithm that has, you know, the best of both worlds, if you want. Yeah, it's an interesting problem, isn't it? Because uh, in some senses, the history of computer graphics has been, we get to a point where we can do it and we can't do it more than that computationally. So we come up with a, a compromise, a hack, a, a workaround, a thing that gets us over the finish line. Um, and then there are other techniques that, you know, just logically could fit into a pipeline and no matter what you do, they'll just be an extra bit of icing on the cake. Uh, obviously, color grading is an example, right? Like you could spend a lot of time to get the colors right in the final render or you can get them, you know, 98% of the way there and then you can use the color corrector at the end because somebody wants to sit, you know, real time kind of sense adjusting it. Are the colors correct from a graded session? Well, they're not. And you may argue that they actually work against realism or you might argue that they make things look more cinematic. but I don't know what the jury's out. It feels like I think I'm hearing you say on whether or not denoising would become a permanent part of a pipeline or just one of these temporary things we do until we we get something else uh, happening in terms of speed of the renderers. Well, it's it's already, I mean, like I said, there's various studios using it already. So it's already part of uh, many yep. pipelines. Uh, I think we need more research. I want to see more research on these algorithms and see how far they can push it. They're still, like I said, they produce the wrong image. They produce, you know, depending on how much noise you you feed into the denoiser, if you start with a very noisy image, you're just going to get a crappy image out anyway. There's no way that a very noisy image can lead you to the right answer. So there's only certain amounts of approximation and error in there. So, well, if we can continue to reduce that error, that'd be great. But we'll see. So that gets me back to my other point that I was wanting to talk to you about. Now, you mentioned that uh, original Pixar paper because you'd mentioned it at the um, SciTech Awards when you and the team were being honoured for the great work you've contributed, I just wondered if, you know, kind of without getting into massive amounts of debt, uh, detail and also debt, in terms of, terms of detail and also just obviously not a something you've had a chance to prepare, but are there papers that, you know, you sort of look back on over your career that you see as being really key papers that have contributed to, to Arnold in the way it is today? Are there just a few historical papers that I could 
trouble you to name? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's tons of them. Like I spent my entire, you know, three five years at university reading all those papers at night back in the '90s or whatever that was, and all of that stuff was incredibly influential. If it wasn't for those early papers, I wouldn't even be, you know, here working on, on rendering. So yeah, there's there's a lot of work by Peter Shirley, which who I don't, I'll never be tired of giving credit to because I learned a lot, most of what I know about sampling from Peter Shealy. Back back then he was at the University of Indiana and then University of Utah. And yeah, he's, he's got papers on, you know, all sorts of stochastic sampling and quasi Monte Carlo sampling before mental images patented those things. He was really influential to me. Uh, Pat Handrahan, Andrew Glasner. I remember the, the, um, the introduction to ray tracing book by, um, by Andrew Glasner mm-hmm. and that book had all of the details in there on how to write your own ray tracer. And that's how, that's where I learned, uh, you know, how to actually implement a uh, ray tracer, uh, mostly from that book, but also from many others. This is way before the PBR book was out, by the way. Uh, yeah. Which is great. And, uh, for that, you know, we, we didn't have that many, that many things up there. It was like the, for me in Spain, it was like the beginnings of access to the internet in university. So it was all very obscure and very new. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I can probably uh, come up with, uh, with other, with other articles, you know, so, uh, the early Lucasfilm, now Pixar, like I said, you know, uh, those guys, those were the guys, you know, Rob yeah. Cook and, I mean, for a very long time, it was uh, not unusual, but well, I guess it was unusual that Pixar just had this attitude of publishing, right? And uh, and when, you know, there was a time there that uh, they were, t- you know, way out in front of everybody else in terms of um, of the success they'd had commercially with the films and everything else, they were still publishing and it was still for the, you know, the betterment of the community. Now, I'm not saying that they published everything the second that they discovered it, but they certainly um, had an attitude uh, that I think was healthy at the, you know, sort of a SID graph level that, um, yep. academically and probably published stuff was, was healthy. It's still, it's still published. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, which is in terms of areas of research right now, and I'm not, I'm not getting you to commit to anything to do with the Arnold Renderer, but are there areas of research right now, um, that you've got your eye on that you sort of feel, uh, things you really would pay attention to if you were to turn up at a, a SID graph that you would be like, wow, that's something I've got to get to? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's more of the same thing, really. I mean, it, this is all about numerical methods. And there, there will always be new, somebody will come up with some new numerical method to, to reduce the error in, in our renders or to improve the quality of the images or to get a, a better, you know, physical or a better approximation to some physical phenomenon. So that, that's all the kind of thing that, that excites me. Uh, on top of that, there's always... Um, non-image uh, related algorithms that are like low level uh, coding techniques or you know ways to extract more power out of the cpu you know parallel programming all you know all sorts of things that are really really interesting in your writing and render it's not just about the the physics of light and all the stuff there's also the the computer science component to it right which is as important if we didn't have efficient algorithms to implement those uh you know those physical um processes then, then they wouldn't we wouldn't have a, an efficient uh, software package for, for doing rendering at all. So both things, you know, the computer graphics stuff, the computer science stuff, it's also, there's a lot in there. So every year at Secret, there's all kinds of things and I'm always keen to, to learn new things and see what's, what people come up with. Is the growth for renderers just sort of speed and quality hand, uh, trade-offs? Oh, is it, 
um, more to do with uh, seeing complexity or um, realism? It feels like the realism has achieved an astonishing level and it doesn't feel like I'm pushing against the wall for realism from the renderer uh, as much as for handling vast complexity and also, as I say, being faster. Would you agree with that? Um, hmm, that's a tricky one. I mean, yeah, you, perhaps we can say that there's that you start to see diminishing returns on the on the quality of the effects that we can render. Uh, but but then back when I was when I was starting back in the nineties or whatever, I remember people telling me exactly that same <laughs> thing. Like, oh, you know, we already have those realistic images that are bother working on this on this field. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. Feels like there's still more things to do. So but but yeah, it sort of feels like we're getting we're getting quite close to reproducing, you know, faithfully how real, you know, scenes uh, look from from our human eyes and cameras. Um, I'm sure there's still a few things that we can that we're not simulating well. So it's gonna be new work on, you know, skin and volumes and all that kind of thing. I know that Paul Levavik in particular now he's he's working on a bunch of cool stuff and like like even better hair rendering and so I don't know, there's there's still a few things to do. I'm not yeah, I don't think we're done yet. You um posted uh, I think you posted, somebody posted uh, some Arnold test renders of some hair on, I'm pretty sure it was Twitter. They were the back of a cartoon mop of hair with different colors and stuff. Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> so that's a, there's a new hair shader that we have developed for the upcoming Arnold 5. And it's just a, you know, it's a much better model, much, a much better hair shading model than the one that we used before. And it's based on all of the best papers that have been published over the last you know five or so years. We got a bit of like the best of each of these papers and improved some of the sampling ideas behind some of those papers. So we're getting to something that looks really, really good, and it's also efficient enough to be to be used in production. So that'll be part of the upcoming Arnold 5, which should be released soon. Any idea exactly when soon is? <laughs> uh, I'm not supposed to say, but it's going to be, I think, I think easily before before the summer. Right, so between, before SIDGRAPH. Between now and SIDGRAPH, you know, it, it should be... We should we should have something. Uh, and again, you know, don't quote me on that. But then, of course, this is going to be published, so never mind. <laughs> well, let's just say that it's uh, it would be in an ideal situation. The aim of the company to see that it was uh, published before SIDGRAPH, without committing it's, to actually doing so. There you go. Um, and uh, and so, what makes those uh, physically based hair shaders that we saw uh, from the Arnold Five test? What made them, in your opinion, better than what was there before? Is it how light is handled uh, inside the sort of clumping of the hair? Like what is it that makes those for you uh, interesting? Yeah, it's, well, it's a particular approximation to all of the scattering uh, components that happen in, inside the hair. You know, the whole, we know a lot about how light scatters inside hair, you know, the, the, the R component, the TT component, the TRT component, and, um, and you know, and, and then light can get stuck inside the hair and, and do a lot of bounces inside one hair. And, and of course, multiple scattering across uh, adjacent hairs. That's a difficult problem when you have, you know, blonde hair and, and light continues to to scatter from hair to hair because uh, because the hairs are blonde or, or, or white and, and and they don't get absorbed by the material inside the hairs. So all the stuff, you know, we found ways to to make that just a little bit better, and that results in in better looking images and hopefully faster renders. I mean, you still it's still a 
hard to compute, let's say, 20 bounces of light inside, you know, a, cl a clump of hair. Um, and yeah, that's why it's still a challenging problem. And we're trying to do that in an unbiased manner without resorting to to hacks or tricks or approximations or caching or interpolation. Like in the past, there, there have been techniques like dual scattering, which could approximate some of these effects, but you know, it's not really giving you the right image. So we're trying to do the right thing and make it fast enough so that it can be used in production. So we talked about your accepting of the SciTech Award, but when you went up, um, it wasn't just you that walked up on the stage. Do you want to tell me about the other people that um, were honoured uh, as part of your um, uh, SciTech uh, Award? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, this award, there were five recipients for this, for this uh, Arnold Award. Uh, myself, two of my colleagues at Solidango, Tiago Ease and Alan King, um, and also two of my colleagues at Sony Picos Imageworks, um, Chris Kula and Clifford Stein. Um, you know, it all started when I went to work at Imageworks in around 2004 to work at mm. Monster House. And Sony gave me, you know, uh, a budget or, uh, or a team. They, they wanted to, to, uh, to get a, a larger engineering team to work on Arnold's to get it ready for Monster House and, and, and other movies. And I hired Chris and, and Clifford. And, you know, that's how it all started. We started improving the existing Arnold and adding a lot of features that we needed for production. Um, you know, later, years later, in 2009, I set up Solid Angle in Madrid and London, and I hired uh, a bunch of other engineers, including Tiago and Alan. Tiago and Alan in particular, uh, they've been helping me with the R&D part of, the, of, of all of this. Alan has been working on subsurface scattering, area lights, uh, volumetric rendering, uh, you know, it's all of these things that, that, that make Arnold what it is. Tiago is a great uh, optimization engineer. Uh, he's, he's our multi-threading expert and, you know, he's just, uh, he's a great guy to be around uh, with. And um, I mean, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. Solid Angle, there's 30 people working today at Solid Angle. And, you know, all of them contributed to Arnold in one way or another. And, you know, in, in a way, I feel a little sad that, that the Academy didn't, could have, couldn't recognize all of these guys, but you know they can only give five word stops to to one product, so that's what it is. But yeah, I mean, thank you so much to, to all my guys at Solid Angle and, and to the team as well who've been helping me in the last year to to get to continue to, to push Arnold to, to where it should be. So, just in uh, in finishing up, like, how are you finding life um, inside uh, Autodesk? We spoke a lot, obviously, at the time of that acquisition and the way that uh, you were setting up the company. And I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't follow up with just finding out how you're enjoying life. And um, it seems, from the outside, not vastly different. But um, how are you finding it at your level? Well, that's the point. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't feel uh, vastly different because that's why I did the acquisition. So I could concentrate on the R&D part of, of this whole thing. So, you know, the first year post-acquisition is actually pretty hard because you have to make sure that all of the new processes don't interfere with the with the existing culture at Toledango. And so, you know, so there's a lot of work and admin work and stuff like that involved in the first year. And I've, I've, I've just... I've just gone through that first year and things are coming down a little bit more. Now I've got to, you know, I should have more time to actually concentrate more on, on the R&D, which was the point of, of, of doing this whole thing to begin with. So yeah, things are going as expected. So because I've got you, I wanted to ask you one other thing, which um, I don't even know if you can talk about, but, you know, obviously uh, on your website, um, buried under a interesting kind of 
great range of uh, academic papers and things you've contributed was some national projects, including the new gen algorithm uh, stuff that was funded out of the uh, EU. That's just come to conclusion. What was the sort of outcome of new gen? I've not been able to find anything about it. it has it yep. yet to been published? What, what was that? Wow, you got a great eye for, <laughs> for finding all these things. So, so that's basically the Spanish government helping us fund the development of the new version of Arnold, Arnold 5. There's a lot of things in there that, uh, you know, we needed more more funds for, and Spanish government helped us uh, do that. So this is just an assorted, uh, you know, uh, collection of, of optimizations, algorithms and stuff that, that, that went into Arnold 5. But, but I mean, it was a three-year program. So this, So one of two things is true, either A, Arnold 5 is a huge step up or B, or B, you've been developing Arnold 5 for three years. But um, yeah, yeah, this so is a three-year program, a right? It's a bit of both. Yeah, Arnold 5 has been in development for, for a long time. And we've been trying to, to hold on certain things until we actually branched the repository to Arnold 5. So there's, yeah, there's been a lot going on. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how it is in other countries, but uh, in many places, you know, local governments uh, yeah, get absolutely. involved with tax rebates and help and all the stuff. So that's just one of the ways in which we benefited from, from you know, from the generosity of the Spanish government. Yeah, I mean, I think most governments would see what you're doing with Arnold as exactly the kind of jobs, careers and uh, industry that they would want to encourage, right? Like it's clean, it's high tech, um, it's international exactly. and it's... Uh, you know, clearly uh, delivering on what it's uh, promised. I mean, most of the R&D projects that get funded by governments, unfortunately, are more speculative and don't necessarily deliver any kind of tangible results. Which brings me to my final question, which is, can we come back and talk to you again when 5 comes out so I can discuss some of the cool stuff that's in 5? Of course, yeah. Um, you know, when when the right time comes, I'll be reaching out to to a few places to to discuss this uh, this major release, and I hope that that you will help us, uh, you know, spread what's cool in, in Arnold Five. There, Love you to. know, uh, I mean, there's we probably will have something going on at FMX, uh, so yeah, we should we should talk. Well, okay, well, uh, <laughs> let's make a date to talk at FMX if that's uh, appropriate, and uh, if not, uh, before SIDGRAPH or whenever it happens. But for now, uh, just want to again say congratulations on being recognised for the outstanding job that um, you and the team uh, have done in providing, um, for, as I said, 20 years worth of uh, contribution to the high end of uh, rendering. Yeah, uh, you know, if you if you give me one more minute... Uh, <laughs> you know, as long as you like. <laughs> At the SciTech Awards, um, you know, I was very nervous. I forgot to write a speech and all that stuff. So by the time I got to to the podium and and, and said a few words, I, of course, I forgot to mention many of the people and to thank out of this and the wider team of Solidango and all these things. But in particular, I forgot to thank my family. You know, and that's uh, that's just such a such an important thing. When when I was a kid, my, my dad, he he's a draftsman. Okay, he he did 3D before there were computers. You know, like many draftsmen. We do That's exceptional work, actually. That's really skilled perspective, you know, yeah. vanishing point work, yeah. So I, I remember, you know, he would teach me like things like uh, in technical draw. I don't know the name in English for that, but, you know, like in Maya, whatever, you have these four viewports, yep. you got the orthographic views and a perspective view. We were doing that with a, with a piece of paper and, and like these rotting, uh, you know, uh, pens and compasses and, and rulers and all this stuff. So that's, you know, I... Learn all the stuff from from my father. Um, you know, I think the, those skills are, are highly uh, not valued enough because really amazing work. Thanks well. So I just wanted to give him a shout out. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Oh, by the way, he, when he was a draftsman, he he helped design the cockpit of one of the jet airplanes, one of the early jet planes that were designed in, in Spain, the Hispano Aviación uh, 200 Saeta. So, you know, like he, we kind of like we already, you know, some of my 3D, my love for 3D already came from from there. Right? Like we, they, these guys were doing CAD, computer design before we had computers. So. Yeah, no, and I, as I was saying, I think some of those skills are just way undervalued. Um, we discovered uh, when we were doing some work that, you know, using those same basic principles, literally with a ruler and a pencil and, uh, and vanishing points, you can pretty much work out, you know, what lens was used on a shot without having to do any kind of uh, 3D tracking and stuff. And when I've shown right. that to people over the years, they've just been like, wow, you know, how was like that invented? And it was like, well, actually, this is really old tech. This is, this is craftsman skill stuff. And uh, yeah, I think it's too easy to forget how, how incredibly important that stuff was and how clever it is. <laughs> yeah. So again, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing more about Arnold 5 when the time is right. Great. So I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Well, thanks to Marcos and Mike for that. I think you'll find that uh, there were so many interesting wins at this year's uh, SciTech Oscars. Make sure you check out the story we did on it on FX Guide. You know, good to see people like old friends at Red uh, being recognized for their work and a whole bunch of people. Um, I hope, check out the article if you haven't followed the SciTech Awards this year. They were um, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, and uh, they'll be announced on the main Oscar stage uh, in a week or so here. So that'll do it for this FX podcast. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.